This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm talking with Mike Bursick, who is the founder of Sacred Rides, one of the top providers of mountain bike tours around the world. He's an educator with the Adventure Travel Association and a co-founder of Bikes Without Borders, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering marginalized communities through bike-related solutions. Thanks for joining us, Mike. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to our chat. So you've been doing what you do for a long time. What is it about biking that has you so stoked to share the experience with other people? Yeah, it's funny when I, when I think about my, my history with cycling, any, any type of cycling, I was actually a little bit of a, a late bloomer. And I, I didn't actually learn how to r- properly ride a bike until I was almost 10 years old. Oh, wow. But, um, but when I did, it was just this crazy aha moment. And um, we lived on this, when I was growing up, we lived on this street that was maybe about, uh, I don't know, I want to say 150, 200 yards long. And uh, when I first you know, got my first bike, my parents said, you can bike on our street, but we don't want you to bike any farther than that. <laughs> and I would just bike up and down the street, back and forth for hours at a time. I just loved being on a bike so much. And mm-hmm. the, the neighbors all thought I was a weirdo because you know, <laughs> I was just biking up and down. Like a caged animal. Yeah, exactly. And then eventually <laughs> they let me explore the neighborhood and, and there's this great little hill. You know, I could climb up to the top of the hill and then bike down. And it was just like this whole other world of just joy and adrenaline and thrills and freedom that opened up to me. And, um, you know, I, I would say that's still the, the motivation to this day is just about sharing sharing that feeling of, um, you know, just joy and happiness and adrenaline and freedom. And I think we can all relate to that, especially especially on a mountain bike, Yeah, you yeah. know, where there's this added element of, you know, maybe you're out in the woods or you're up in the mountains or uh, there's this element of maybe solitude to it. And then you know, with with what I've done with with Sacred Rides, there's the whole element of exploring the world to it and exploring other cultures, and kind of always maintained that a mountain bike is is really one of the most ideal ways to explore a country because you can, when you get on a mountain bike, you can get out there, you can get to regions that you know you can't access with a, a tour bus or a van, but maybe it's also too far to really access on foot. So you get to these mm-hmm. really out of the way places, and I th- I think back to my first experienced mountain biking in Peru and we were going through these communities where they almost never saw tourists and just these incredible outpourings of curiosity and and welcoming us and just amazing so that's um, that's a big part of why I do what I do and and sharing that love yeah that's really fascinating I mean yeah it sounds like in a lot of ways you're you're showing your parents now that you can ride wherever you want to I mean you've been all over the world with your bike and you're like yeah, I'm free now. Yeah, I, I never thought of it that way, but maybe that's really it. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to constrain me to, to our little street anymore. <laughs> right, took it to the extreme. And it's also awesome to think about the fact that mountain bikes can take us so many places that other tourists maybe haven't been or you know, just places that are a little bit less accessible and maybe more authentic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So how did Sacred Rides get started? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend this as a, as a 
my path as a as a career path for most people. But um, I the day after my last exam out of uh, university, I went to university here in Toronto, Canada. And the day after that last exam, I just packed up. I had a had a green Volvo station wagon, and I packed it up and drove out west to the mountains. Ended up in the little ski town of Fernie, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, over the course of the next five six months, it was I got I got fired from my first three jobs there. <laughs> and uh, really, you know, at, at the conclusion of that kind of came to this self realization that maybe maybe I just I'm just not cut out to be an employee. I don't I don't work well for others. Mm-hmm. And after getting fired from my third job, I was actually walking along this river trail with a couple friends, kind of scratching my head and wondering what I was going to do next because I clearly wasn't wasn't cut out to be working for others. And my friend said, "Well, you're just gaga about mountain biking, and there's all these amazing." mountain bike trails here and most of them are really hard to find and mm-hmm. maybe some people will will want to pay you to take them exploring around uh, around the valley and that kind of I didn't really think much of it at first but it kind of percolated over the next couple of days and I said hey you know maybe I maybe I could do that and I ended up convincing another friend to join me on this venture and we ended up getting a, a ten thousand dollar loan to get started didn't really know what we were doing. I, I still actually have a copy of our first business plan, which is kind of laughable. <laughs> but and it's and it's actually the the cover is the cover out of is in that Comic Sans font, which is oh, which wow. is also also pretty funny. <laughs> Professional, of course. But um, from the beginning, our our ambitions were pretty simple. You know, we were going to get a fleet of mountain bikes that we could rent out, and then we were going to offer day trips around the valley. And our first summer, we did a we did a grand total of one one day trip oh, wow. and uh, off to a roaring start we managed to um, we managed to rent enough bikes that kind of keep us going we certainly weren't getting wealthy in the process but we man- we could at least manage the loan payments mm-hmm. and um, you know I-, I like to tell this story of, of our first customer and-, and I think we actually did a rock paper scissors to see who would take him out and I won and I took this guy out and he he definitely must have thought I was drunk or high or something because I, I just had this huge grin on my face the entire time and I just and it was a beautiful sunny day and I just could not believe that somebody was actually paying me to go mountain biking and that this is how I was earning money and um, you know that that was enough to to carry the stoke on through the winter and um, so the next year we had incredible growth we we had two customers, so we had oh, wow. we had hundred percent, hundred percent, yeah, or hundred percent, hundred percent growth. And again, like you know, we managed to rent enough bikes that uh, it was almost a viable business. But the real, you know, the real breakthrough came in our third year when we had sort of this mentor. He was a successful local entrepreneur, and he'd kind of been giving us a little bit of advice. And he said, "Well, why don't you put together some overnight trips? Surely, you know, surely there'd be people who'd want to spend five or seven days with you." doing that and there's way more money in that than you know you got to do hundreds of these day trips so we put together a couple week-long overnight trips and those you know they didn't fly off the shelves but they certainly did i think we did three or four uh that first year that first summer we did three or four okay. week-long trips and um you know that, that and that was just a blast and it gave us a real opportunity to give people a really deeper view into just this amazing backcountry around Fernie in the southeast, you know, Canadian Rockies and really give them a, a deep immersion into just this incredible area and these, these great mountain biking, you know, all these special places that we'd been exploring over the, the last few years. And um, things really took off from there. Yeah, that's cool. That's a really cool story. So 
Over the years, I imagine you met a lot of people who rode with a lot of different mountain bikers from all over the place. And so as a tour operator and a ride leader, I feel like, I mean, a big part of your job is to keep people safe and make sure that they have a good time. So how do you temper a need to like push riders beyond their comfort zone with making sure that they enjoy the overall experience? I don't actually see that as a trade-off. Pushing people out of their comfort zone has always kind of been part of how we approach things. And my experience has been, you know, in, in the early years, you know, the first 10 years of the company from 1996 to 2006, I was doing everything, you know, guiding, cooking, driving, marketing department, sales department, finance, you, you name it. So, yeah. and as we got busier over those years, you know, we were running back-to-back trips from mid-June right through end of September. So doing a lot of guiding mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people. And, um, you know, my discovery and my, my take on it was that when we pushed people out of their comfort zones, and it's not necessarily, you know, we were taking them on crazy hard trails. We did that sometimes, but sometimes it was pushing them out of their comfort zone in terms of how much physical energy they were going to expend on that day. And they, they might not necessarily appreciate it in the moment. They, they're, they're, they're grunting up some hill and they're sweating and they're cursing and they're, it's not a particularly enjoyable feeling in the moment. But, you know, later that night sitting around the campfire or even a few weeks later, you know, just like really appreciating that, appreciating it more than just, you know, yeah. hey, hey, we're out kind of cruising along. So uh, I never ne- never really saw that as a, as a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Because that was how we, we got people to, to really, truly savor and enjoy that experience. And, you know, you've, I'm sure you can relate to this, some of those kind of disaster rides where maybe the weather turns like really crazy and you're getting hailed on or you get lost or whatever. Those are the ones, those are the experiences that really, that really stand out many years later. And, and you <laughs> kind of, the, 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 any pain and suffering in that moment kind of fades and and just the you know the sheer adrenaline and and you know whatever of that moment is is what endures afterwards and yeah. and and actually you know saying that reminded me of um I think it was probably around year 4 year 5 we were way out in the backcountry of southeastern BC we were in this area called the Flathead Valley and we were biking into this provincial park called Akamina Kishinina and very remote park most people enter it from the east through Waterton Lakes which is a popular park but we entered through the western side which there's a guest book there any given year there'd be there'd be fewer than 20 people that access it through that end so we were coming in through that end very remote tons of wildlife ever a grizzly you know already kind of a crazy experience for a lot of people but then uh with about you know five miles to go to get to our ultimate destination it start this crazy storm rolled in and it was just like lightning hailstones like really crazy trees getting struck around us people are like running you know we're, we're, we're telling people to get off their bikes and we're running to the closest shelter we could find yeah. and uh it, it was kind of a crazy moment people people were not totally freaking out but there's a little bit of panic there and then afterwards you know all people could talk about was what a cool experience that was <laughs> and people emailing me like months afterwards saying oh that was one of the highlights of my life was that crazy huh. experience so we've never shied away from those types of crazy experiences mm-hmm. and of course safety is a huge huge concern but we do a lot of we do a lot of training with that and our you know our guide manual is is dozens of pages long and there's all kinds of you know every scenario you could pro- possibly encounter is in there so yeah it is a fine balance you know yeah well it sounds like i mean you take sort of the long view and it's it's a really 
good view, in my opinion, the long view of the experience. Like you may not be enjoying it now, but you're going to enjoy it later. But what do you do like in that moment? You know, like, do you just ignore someone who's complaining? Do you empathize with them? Like what is, what's been sort of the thing that works for you to like get somebody through a ride when they're really not having fun in the moment? Mm -hmm. Well, you, you sort of touched on it. Empathy is really important in moments like that. You know, you, you can't tell you can't just say, oh, you know, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> Especially if they're paying you, you can't say that. <laughs> exactly. And, um, and that's, a, that's a bit of an art too, right? It's, it's, uh, and one of the worst things I've found is to really minimize the amount of, or downplay the amount of additional suffering. And that's, that's very easy for a guide. You know, somebody's like just sucking wind trying to get up a hill and you're like, oh, it's just, it's just a few more minutes when it's actually, yeah. you know, half an hour or something like that. And you just want to, yeah. you want to ease their, their pain. But then, when you say it's you know ten more minutes, and then at the fifteen minute mark, it's still obvious they got a long way to go. They're going to hit you even more. So right. A dose of realism is really important, and a, and a dose of empathy. You just have to say, hey, listen, uh, I know you're struggling. I I know it sucks, but trust me, when you get to the top of this hill and you see that view, we're going to take a nice little rest, and all that pain and suffering is going to vanish from your your memory, and mm-hmm. it'll all be worth it. And then people, you know, given trip, whether it's a week long or five days long or 10 days long, there's going to be plenty of moments like that where people are really hurting or suffering or they feel like they're in over their head, whatever. But they do that a few times and then they really come to appreciate the value of that suffering. They come to appreciate the reward that comes with that that suffering. And years later, they're not going to remember how hard they were huffing up a hill. They're, they're going to remember the view they had on top of that hill, and they're going to remember yeah. that amazing descent that they had down. So, you know, it's just a matter of getting people comfortable with the idea that good things don't come without without effort and, and often a little bit of suffering. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, so over the years, I imagine you've done a number of different types of trips, whether it be for more experienced mountain bikers or maybe like newer mountain bikers. So, what does success look like when you're introducing somebody to a new trail, perhaps, you know, in a place they've never ridden or even to mountain biking for the first time? What are you trying to do with that experience and what do you hope somebody takes away from it? Yeah, a great question. You know, most of our most of our longer trips are they're generally for an audience that is experienced mountain bikers. Not necessarily. I mean, we have trips that are for, you know, advanced advanced riders. We have some that are more for immediate, but in general, they're they're you know it's not for somebody who's slinging a leg over a mountain bike for the first time. But um, mm-hmm. you know, w- when you ask that question, I thought back about this probably be I'm, I'm thinking about ten years ago when um, there, there's this there's this trail network here in Toronto called the Don Valley, big huge network of single track. It's I, th- I think one of the biggest urban networks of single track in north america and, and we're, ble- we're blessed with this amazing ravine system here in toronto that i think is fairly unparalleled in, in north america and there's a lot of green space throughout the city and this huge network of trails and um but nobody hardly anybody knows about it and it's changed a lot of the, over the 10 last 10 years you know more people have come to discover it but back then it was kind of like this well well-kept secret mm-hmm. and you know i didn't really want i, I didn't want to necessarily let the secret or let the cat out of the bag but i also wanted to expose more people to this amazing resource so we launched this uh, this weekly you know mountain bike skill series and we had beginner uh, intermediate and advanced levels and it was you know show up every tuesday night for the next five weeks and we had a bunch of different instructors but i, I, I was also one of the instructors mm-hmm. and i took on the 
beginner group. And, um, you know, at first I was a little bit resentful, like, why did I give myself the beginner group? I, w- I want to be, a, I want to be out there riding the, the hard trails with the more advanced riders, but it was, it was one of the most rewarding things, uh, I've done because taking people who have, you know, maybe never been on a mountain bike before and then teaching them the basics of mountain biking. And at the same time, introducing them to this amazing, you know, semi wilderness resource right at their, right at their doorstep was incredible. And, you know the one i think the one enduring thing from that is the is the confidence that it engendered in people and we would we would do a lot of stuff you know we would do a lot of sessioning on trails we would come to some sort of obstacle whether it's a log across the trail or whatever and we would stop and i would just take people one by one through this thing and and usually stay there until everybody's managed to successfully clear this thing, you know, unless there's somebody who's really got a mental block about it, whatever. But mm-hmm. seeing people, you know, who would come up to a log and be like, oh, my God, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to ride that. And they're kind of a little bit freaked out. And, you know, I'd calm them down a bit and we'd set up spotters and the whole thing. And then they would do it a few times until they get it. And then it's like this amazing light bulb moment. And they're like, oh, my God. And, you know, people are high-fiving each other and, and cheering. And it's amazing to see just people's sense of accomplishment and pride when they do something like that. Yeah, And then amazing to see over the course of five weeks, somebody who didn't you know, know the first thing about mountain biking, by the end of it, they're riding some pretty challenging obstacles, and they develop this incredible feeling of confidence. And I've had people reach out to me afterward and just say, you know, I want to thank you for, for this course, because not only did it teach me confidence on a mountain bike, but that's spilled over into other areas of my life. And I've seen that on, on an even more extreme scale with some of our longer trips, you know, and then also lots of people who said, thank you for introducing me to the, to these trails. I never knew they existed. And, you know, we're out here all the time. I'm out here with my kids now. And, you know, yeah. that, that to me is, is success. Just seeing people light up like that and just, you know, getting more people into mountain biking. Yeah. It sounds super rewarding. Yeah. So over the years, obviously, you've ridden a lot of places and your company has guided people all over the world. So what are some of the most interesting places you've personally explored by bike? Yeah, I mean, I have to go back to Peru on this one. And um, Peru was actually the first place I've ridden outside of Canada. And so, you know, this is 2006. I just moved back to Toronto from Fernie, from this, you know, little beautiful town in the Rockies to this big, big city. I, I was kind of wondering what to, what to do with my company at the time. Do I fold it? Do I try to sell it? Whatever. was a little bit unsure. And uh, I ended up getting this email from this guy in Peru who, who was running a company down there doing day trips around Cusco and Lima. And he was looking for somebody to partner with to develop these longer trips. So he invited me down there to check it out. And on a whim, I said, yes, sure, I'll check it out. I brought a couple of journalist friends with me. And that trip was really just, you know, it still stands out to this day. We don't offer that trip the same way that, that I did that trip and the way that we offered in the first couple of years where we flew to this town called Andahuaylas, which is in the interior, and then overland, basically, you know, through the Andes, ended up in, in Cusco over the course of the next seven days. You know, that experience of going through these really remote areas and these communities where people are coming out to greet us, these incredible trail like I've never experienced downhills like that ever since. You know, you have these downhills that are like 11,000 feet of vertical from, from top to bottom. And it's oh, just, wow. and you know, you think, oh my God, it can't possibly go on any longer. We've been riding downhill for so long and you're only halfway, halfway down. Wow. 
And so that that combination of incredible riding, the spectacular scenery, the culture of Peru, you know, Inca culture, Quechua culture, is an amazing combination. And to me, that sort of embodies, you know, everything that's amazing about what we do is this opportunity to not only ride these great trails, but explore this, you know, this unique culture and this incredible country. So Peru's kind of always at the top of my list. I guess maybe, you know, the most interesting trip I ever did was three years ago now, I think I want to say, in Greenland. And um, we started um, near the ice cap in a town called Kangerluswak. And and I think it's about 100, a little over 100 miles from there to the coast. This was in, in early April, so it was still very much winter there. And it was, it was a fat, fat bike trip. And it's along this trail i mean there's no trail in the winter but it's called the arctic circle trail and there's there's four or five huts along the route they're mainly used by local hunters and but um we overnighted in these huts and it was just uh, you know i've never experienced wilderness on and solitude on that level before where it's just like greenland's i I don't know what the exact size of greenland is but it's massive it's probably like half of the size of the united states or something crazy like that and there's only fifty thousand people in the entire country and and uh all of those people live on the coast so this is extreme wilderness on another level and that was it was it was a really difficult trip and i and i suffered on that trip like i never have before but again going back to that earlier conversation that was a really peak experience for me and and just an amazing experience of being just completely out there like in one of the remotest places on earth that was that was incredible yeah that sounds really cool so it sounds like in peru you found some really awesome trails and then in greenland i mean it almost sounds like you're blazing your own trail is it is it difficult to find good mountain bike trails in various places around the world like and also is that getting easier i mean i feel like mountain bike tourism is more of a thing now than it used to be so what, what's been your experience in finding these places to take people? Yeah, well, it definitely is more of a thing than it used to be by, by, by leaps and bounds. And when I think back to that first uh, trip to Peru, you know, in terms of the local mountain bike scene, it was our lead guide and, you know, a handful of his friends and maybe a few dozen other people mm-hmm. in the country. And now it's exploded and, and there's a massive mountain bike scene there. And those, you know, those people are out there maintaining and building trails you know, we're still still to this day on a on a trip like that, we are we're mountain biking on old Inca roads. You know that were built that were built hundreds and hundreds of years ago to connect various parts of the empire and footpaths connecting villages and stuff like that. So the vast majority of what we're riding in a location like that, or in a place like Guatemala or Nepal, these are these are footpaths that are connecting different places and different villages and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, it's really the challenge of finding something that's actually rideable, right? So yeah. obviously something that you can get to get across on your feet doesn't necessarily translate into being totally rideable on a bike. So so it, that's that's the big challenge in finding those in, in a place like that, you know, developing country or something like that. There's probably not a lot of purpose-built trails, mm-hmm. but we know that there's thousands of miles of, you know, these types of paths that can be used for mountain bikes and so it's a you know balance of finding something that's rideable but also something that isn't going to you know disrupt local foot traffic stuff like that uh, that's being respectful to the local communities and all that kind of stuff and then there's other places you know where they're north america western europe stuff like that where there's tons and tons of purpose-built stuff and then 
then the big challenge is, you know, how do we how do we do this legally and with respect for local landowners and mountain bike clubs and trail trail builders and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's 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 definitely a challenge. It's probably less of a challenge doing that in developing countries where there isn't uh, a mountain bike scene because um, you know there isn't the same level of regulation and oversight and all that kind of stuff. You know, if we if we want to launch a new destination in the United States, we're dealing with the BLM Bureau of Land Management. We're dealing with Forest Service. We're dealing with municipal levels of government. We're dealing with you know all kinds of stuff that exists to serve a purpose, but often can have so many bureaucratic layers of of complexity. It's like, oh my God, this is this isn't worth it. I'm going to Kazakhstan, where I'm, I'm not going to see another person for a hundred miles, and nobody cares. What the hell? Right. What the hell we're doing? So, uh, but you know, for me personally, it's like exploring those really unknown and underknown and underused places. That's that's really exciting, you know, because there's just this buzz of like, you know, like the the Greenland trip. We were the third and fourth people to ever ever bike that route. There was a couple guys who did it the year before. You know, that that's pretty cool and and exciting to know that you're kind of blazing a trail, so to speak, metaphorically and literally. Yeah, very cool. So a lot of these mountain bike tours and holidays appear to be fairly expensive for a lot of people. So what would you say to someone who thinks that like a sacred rides trip, for example, is too expensive for them or that it's overpriced? Like what what value do guests get out of doing a tour with, you know, somebody like sacred rides versus going in alone? Mm-hmm. So that's probably a, you know, a common knock on our industry you look at you know you look at the price of a typical trip let's say you know $3000 for a 7 day trip and you're looking at hmm well that's about a little over $400 a day i can get myself a hotel for x number of dollars and i can brown bag it whatever you know i can do this for a, a fraction of the, <laughs> a fraction of the price and of course right. you can you know by all means uh, go do it that's that's in, entirely viable when you actually you know when you actually total up the actual costs when you you know, you look at the cost of the vans and the fuel and the guides and the lodging and the food and, you know, everything that goes into an experience like this, mm-hmm. it adds up pretty pretty quickly. And I can tell you, you know, nobody is in our industry because there's easy money to be made here. <laughs> right. Margins are actually not that great in, in our industry. And you, you have to ch- charge what seems like a lot in order just to make it a viable business. You know, and, and, in, and in terms of value, I, I guess there's two kind of main values from it one is you can just show up you know with our trips you show up you want to go ride crew with us you just show up in lima we get your flight details in advance there's somebody waiting at the airport with a sign in their hand take you to your hotel you're going to wake up the next morning to a great breakfast you're going to hop in a van you're going to get taken with a couple of local guides to an incredible trail that maybe you would never find it out about on your own you would never be able to find it on you know, trail forks or something like that. And you're going to ride an incredible trail. Somebody's going to be taking care of your snacks, feeding you an amazing lunch in a remote village. Uh, you'll get an opportunity to, you know, meet locals, stuff like that. And you don't have to think, you don't have to think about a thing. It's all taken care of you. And you're going to ride the, you know, all the best trails there. You're not going to be looking at maps or second guessing yourself, stuff like that. And then the other is, you're going to have an opportunity to just meet incredible people from around the world. You know, your guides for one, but then all these other people who are gathering together to for this shared experience. Mm-hmm. And as we probably all know, you know, the experience of riding together is, is a great way for people to 
to bond. You know, you go for a great, maybe not doing that much bonding in the act of riding itself because mm-hmm. you're kind of you know busy paying attention to the trail. But you know, go for a beer afterwards or whatever. Talk about you know the bail that you took on on this obstacle or something like that. And it's it's a great experience and it's a great way for people to connect. And we know from experience that you know people who go on our our trips often remain connected to the other people on their trip for years and sometimes a lifetime afterwards. And, you know, we've had people get married because of they met on our trips and we've had people develop really deep lifelong friendships. And um, if you don't have, if you don't have your own kind of posse of people to ride with and travel with, it's a great way to meet other people. And probably about 70, 80% of the people that come on our trips are, are on their own. And uh, either they don't have a regular riding crew or they do and their regular riding crew doesn't, have the means or doesn't like to travel or whatever so there's a lot of value in that but of course it's not for everyone right like you want to go to moab you can you know you can stay at the campground and you can moab's pretty easy to get around <laughs> right you can you can find your own way around and ride your brains out and have a great time yeah that's a little bit harder to do in in the mustang valley of nepal or you know the back country of peru for instance right yeah i mean you make make a really good point that while you could try to put together some of these trips on your own, there's a lot of risk that you're going to miss out on things or you're going to make mistakes in terms of where you stay or even what bike you ride or who you hook up with. And it seems like these holidays, they, they just put it all together for you and make it much less stressful and, and guarantee that you're going to ride something that's worth riding. Like you didn't waste your time traveling halfway around the world and then realize there's nothing there for you. Exactly. So you you have traveled the world in your role at Sacred Rides, and you've worked with guides all across the globe. So how has that influenced the Bikes Without Borders mission? Bikes Without Borders would would not exist without Sacred Rides, and it was it was very much born out of Sacred Rides. So again, this Peru factors into this story plays a I guess really pivotal role in the evolution of Sacred Rides and of Bikes Without Borders. One of our clients who lives a couple hours north of Toronto was going on a trip to Peru with us. And she said, hey, I've got all these got all these good quality bikes in my garage. They need a little bit of work, but they're generally in great shape. Is there, you know, is there someone in Peru that could use these bikes? And I thought, oh, I'm sure there is. So I, I, I sent an email to our lead guide in Peru and I say, hey, you know, if I brought a dozen bikes with me, um, do you think any of the communities where we operate would use them and he emailed back right away oh my god they would you know they would be life-changing down there you know people Mm. generally can't afford bikes but often you know getting around is very difficult especially in some of the more remote communities so i Mm -hmm. messaged her back and she said great she ended up organizing a bike maintenance pizza party the next uh you know the next night or a couple nights later and a whole bunch of people from the community showed up and worked on these bikes got them in great condition put them in boxes and then shows up at my at my door a day later with these with these 10 bikes and uh just kind of drops them off so i ended up lugging these things down to peru with me and we took them to this um, community santo domingo de los olleros which is way up way up high um, in the mountains of the andes about three hours outside of lima we ended up giving them to the local school and um ended up meeting with the with the school headmaster and you know he practically broke my hand from shaking it so hard and he said oh these bikes are going to make such a huge difference i think we had you know about eight adult bikes and four kids bikes wow seems like that would be tough to get those down there in the first place it was (laughs) it was and um so ended up going back to that community about six months later and uh schoolmaster 
you know, comes out to greet the, this is a small village, you know, I'm guessing probably four or 500 people, right? So mm-hmm. when a big van full of mountain bikers shows up, it's kind of a big deal. So the community comes out, he comes out, and, and again, he's shaking my hand. He's like, oh my God, these, these bikes are incredible. We rent them out to the local farmers for four cents a day. And, you know, they can, some of them have to walk an hour or two to get to their, to get to their fields and they can get there in a fraction of the time. They have more time for farming. Uh, They make more money because they're able to farm better. And the kids' bikes, you know, we give them to kids when they, when they, uh, when they try really hard at school and all the kids want want to use these bikes. So everybody's, you know, school grades have gone up and everything like that. And so it was a real, it was a really um, eye-opening window into the, into the power of, of the bike in, the, in these communities where transportation is such an issue you know they, there's people don't have cars there public transport is like you know a bus that rolls through once a week and they don't have bikes there might be a few horses here and there so bike is this you know really empowering thing we ended up doing i think a couple more donations of bike there bikes there and then and then my wife suggested to me hey you know this appears to really be making an impact why don't we why don't we create a nonprofit? And and so we ended up doing that. We did a big fundraiser, Toronto Islands, and raised I think about fifty thousand dollars. Wow! There and ended up launching a project in Malawi, Africa, donating new bikes and these bicycle ambulances, ambulances which are essentially a stretcher that attaches to the back of a bike. Oh, cool! And um, ended up doing this whole project there, and then a big impact assessment afterwards. And you know, ultimately the 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 impact of something like that, where you have these community health workers who are volunteers who are trained by local NGOs or international NGOs and they do all this life-saving work but you know when they're walking an hour or two hours from village to village that really limits how effective they can be and uh, you know the simple act of donating a bike to them means they can you know they can reach so many more people and can be so much more efficient in their work and um, you know over time that that's morphed and currently we're doing a project where we collecting and refurbishing old bikes here in Toronto and then there we work with community agencies around the city to donate bikes to new refugees who need you know help with transportation so mm-hmm. they're they're two completely different organizations now sacred rides and bikes without borders but bikes without borders wouldn't exist without all the travel that I've done around the world and seeing the impact of bikes in, right. in some of these communities. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting and, and cool to see how bikes can help people all over the world. So it seems like today people are just now discovering all the interesting and unique places to ride sort of, you know, locally and within their own regions and and people now, you know, it's pretty common in the U S anyway, for people to travel across the country to places like Moab or to Pisgah to ride. So has international mountain bike travel benefited from this sort of seemingly new awareness and desire to explore new trails? Yeah. Well, the short answer would be yes. You know, when, when we started out, which is now, you know, coming up this June will be 23 years since I, I started the company. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really, in those early years, it was a really big effort just to convince people why the, it, it didn't really exist, you know, this yeah. this concept of guided mountain bike travel. And so a lot of our work was just to convince people of, of the value of doing something like this and, you know, being met with a lot of skepticism, like, oh my God, that sounds like the stupidest thing ever. Why would I want to go somewhere, you know, I, I love mountain biking because it's my way of you know, getting out there by myself and freedom and, and I'm a rebel and all this, you know, all this kind of stuff. So <laughs> trying to convince people that it was a good idea. And then, you know, over, over the years, as more and more people have come through the, through our doors and, and they discover, 
you know, they really discover, hey, this this actually is kind of cool, and and I get to meet all these cool people, and I get to ride all these great trails, and somebody's taking care of everything for me, and you know, I don't have to spend weeks dealing with all the prep and logistics beforehand. So, and again, this is you know, a lot of people, it's just not the right thing for them at all, particularly if you know, if you're used to, if you're used to just bombing down trail, up and down trails as fast as you possibly can and trying to clock as many miles on your odometer, it's definitely not the right thing for you because you're going to end up, you know, at certain points, you're going to end up waiting for people. You've got to want, you know, you've got to enjoy the group experience and that, and that's the whole package, right? Which involves waiting for people. Sometimes it it involves getting pissed off by other people, whatever. (laughs) Right. But then there's, you know, all the, all, all the, the joy that comes with that as well. So, you know, over the years, more and more people have discovered, the value of this type of experience, and and um, and that has certainly helped the industry as a whole. Uh, but also, you know, discovering that th- there's way more to explore out there on a mountain bike than people thought before. You know, people thought right. in, the, in their little you know Moab, Whistler, Pisgah sort of sort of buckets, or maybe if they were feeling exotic, they'd hop over to Europe and ride in a place like Morzine or something like that. And now they're discovering that holy crap, you know, I can I can ride my mountain bike just about anywhere mm-hmm. in the world. You know, whether that's riding on single track type stuff or gravel grinder type stuff or whatever, pretty much anywhere in the world. Particularly the more kind of off the beaten path you get, you know, there's already a network of of footpaths and animal trails and whatever that you can explore in a mountain bike. And unless you're the like the really adventurous type who enjoys going to the remote backcountry of Kazakhstan, not knowing not knowing a word of, uh, you know, Kazakh and and um, potentially risking all kinds of things. That's not really an you know that that type of experience is only open to a few people who are really on the extreme end of the adventure scale. But mm-hmm. you know, you can still have a lot of that same feeling of like, wow, we're you know we're on a really we're on an adventure, right, with a capital A, exploring mm-hmm. these really cool places, but. I don't have to be worried about getting lost. Uh, I've got somebody who can speak the local language and integrate me with the local communities and all that kind of stuff. And they're really, you know, people are really discovering just, you know, how cool of an experience that could be. So that's, yeah. that seems to really be growing in the, in the industry as a whole. Yeah. Well, is, have the changes in bikes helped with that as well? I mean, I imagine a lot of these trails, since they aren't purpose-built for mountain biking, they, they can be kind of rough and remote, as you say. So are things like, you know, fatter tires or more reliable components, like, is that making it easier or is that opening up, you know, places that maybe you wouldn't have considered running a trip before? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think, you know, I think back to my, my first actual mountain bike and, um, it was a it was a company called Balance, and I think they were out of California, and um, you know this was um, early '90s, and I would and I was I had a subscription to Mountain Bike Action, and I'd be looking through the through the the ads at the back, you know you know those two page ads like all all these all these parts and whatever, and just saw this frame for sale, and I just ordered the frame, and that was all I could afford at the time, and then had a little bit more money, so I ordered you know I ordered uh, a drivetrain, and then. Or, or it took me probably about six months to finally finish the bike and probably cost me three times more than actually just buying a bike. But um, when I think back to that first bike, it had one-inch one inch travel forks on it. I think they were rock, mm-hmm. rock shocks probably. And it was a hardtail. And, you know, if I, if I took something like that on, on our, you know, what we offer as our Peru trip right now, 
I'd come home a broken man. <laughs> There's some, you know, it, it's not all rough. Some of the trails are actually decently smooth, but there are definitely enough rough sections in there that I wouldn't want to ride that. We do, we do get people, you know, who are, you know, into that sort of thing, doing it on a hardtail. Sometimes mm-hmm. you get the odd crazy person who wants to do it on a fully rigid because they're just amazing riders and they can do it. But um, you get long travel bikes, that opens up a whole other world. The other big thing, which I think we'll see a lot more of over the coming years, is e-bikes, e-mountain bikes. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, we don't, we don't offer uh, an e-mountain bike trip. We don't offer e-mountain bike rentals, but it's definitely a conversation we've had frequently. We haven't really gone anywhere with it. I, I don't think it's the type of thing where you can mix you know, I, 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 oh, right. I, I don't know if I'd want to run a trip where, you know, seven of the people are riding conventional mountain bikes and then you have two people who are riding e-mountain bikes right. and, and these seven people are, are, you know, sucking wind and suffering and the other people are just kind of cruising up. That would probably create a weird dynamic. So right. it, I think it's got to be kind of a, an all e-bikes type of, type of thing. And mm-hmm. the issue with that is they're not, you know, they're not allowed on, on every trail network. And they're also, they're hard to... Uh, Hard to find. There aren't too many stores that have like a big fleet of e-mountain bikes, and they're also hard to travel with, right? Because it's hard to tra- right. travel with the batteries. But that's going to shift. And you know, I think also think to our clientele, you know, people who've been coming with us for the last twenty years, a lot of those people are now, you know, maybe in their fifties or maybe in in their sixties. They still love to ride. They still ride hard, but they just don't have the stamina, and they would hop all over, you know, the idea of a week long e-mountain bike trip particularly if everybody else was on an e-bike and they didn't have to worry about the stigma associated with it. So that's going to open up a lot of uh, stuff, I think, over the coming years, and it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, it seems like gravel bikes as well. You know, these like all-road type bikes would be really efficient for trips. And, and again, it's like people are discovering places that, you know, maybe mountain bikers too, they wouldn't travel to some of these places because there isn't like single-track necessarily but you know you've got gravel roads all over the world and seems like that that's a great vehicle for exploring that as well yeah you know for for me personally as somebody who spends you know when i have a choice to go out and ride i'm i'm riding single track and i you know i never really thought i would enjoy a kind of gravel grinder type thing but you know Mm -hmm. i've had a few experiences where I mean, I look at it from the standpoint of any anytime I'm on a bike, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm enjoying myself. It's just fun, <laughs> yeah. fun being on a bike. But um, you know, you get you get somewhere, you get on a gravel road or a dirt road, and you're out in the backcountry, and and you know the sun is shining. You're in these beautiful areas, and I'm not necessarily getting you know the thrill of riding on single track, but it, it's it can still be a really magical experience. You know, I think back to that Greenland experience. We were biking on snow and ice for for a week. There wasn't any single track ride in there, but um, that was you know every bit as magical as you know an experience I've had riding incredible single track in Peru or in BC or something like that. So, so many options when you're when you're riding a bike and combining it with this element of discovery and exploring new places. That's just you know just magical. Yeah, for sure. So finally, I want to ask you, what are some up-and-coming mountain bike destinations to consider over the next three to five years? Are there certain countries or regions that are like really developing mountain bike tourism, or are there maybe some places that are under the radar that you'd love to check out? Yeah, I mean, I mean there's so many. You know, like I, I go to this conference called the Adventure Travel World Summit, and it's this big adventure travel conference that brings together about you know, 800 people in the adventure travel industry. Hmm. Uh, and it's a different part of the world every year. 
And, um, you know, I have so many conversations with people all over the world, you know, saying, oh, you need to come to our area. We've got, you know, incredible mountain biking. And it's just, you know, so many places everywhere around the world, just this real explosion. And, and you know, I don't know whether there's necessarily the numbers to, um, you know, to fill up, you know, all these different destinations. But I think I, th- I think that'll come later. But a lot of communities and a lot of regions and countries are seeing the benefit, not just mountain bike tourism, but cycling tourism in general. And it's, um, and it's really, you know, really a hot topic. One area that I think is, is really going to blossom over the coming years is, is Africa and, you know, all over that continent, which is really, I think, underappreciated destination for tourism in general, but also specifically for mountain bike tourism and cycling tourism. And, yeah, uh, you know, I know a few operators in South Africa and Namibia, like mountain biking, as you probably know, is huge in South Africa, massive, like Mm -hmm. these, these races that, draw thousands right. thousands and thousands of people but it's not you know it's not just in in southern africa all of these other countries that have you know incredible topography and geography and and amazing riding i think that's going to be um a big a big growth uh, area over the over the coming years but also you know these out of the way places like kazakhstan or uzbekistan you know places that have these incredible landscapes but nobody knows about them and all it really takes is is a little bit of awareness and people getting over the, the stigma of like, oh, I've never heard of Kazakhstan. It must must be da- dangerous. You know, I'm going to get killed. I'm not going to go there. So it just takes a little bit of awareness and a shift in consciousness, and these regions can really become, you know, it's it's funny, you know, how the global tourism industry works. There's sometimes there's no accounting for how changes in tastes happen, and we'll have, you know, we'll have a year where we're just filling up every single spot we have on our New Zealand trips. And then next year we have the hardest time filling up New Zealand. And all of a sudden everybody wants to go to Nepal, for instance. And um, there's often no rhyme or reason to it. It's just like certain destinations just, uh, I don't know, become part of the zeitgeist or whatever. But, you know, I've always for years thought, oh, I want to put together a trip in Antarctica. I I don't know. I, I would imagine the logistics of trying to do some sort of bike trip in Antarctica would be crazy, but I'm sure somebody's going to do it soon enough. Right. Yeah. There was a video a few years ago from, uh, I forget who the athletes were, but they, you know, took a boat over there and like did a little bit of free riding. Yeah. It looks, definitely looks rugged and rough. Yeah. Yeah. You could say. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much, Mike, for talking with us. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation and, and learned a lot about leading mountain bikers on trips around the world. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Jeff. So you can learn more about Sacred Rides and some of the trips that they have on offer at sacredrides.com. And remember, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, we'd love to have you rate us in the iTunes podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all I've got this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.